0: Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in Education, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Laura Kelly, a host on the channel, and today we'll be talking to Kara Fitzpatrick, the author of the new book, The Death of Public School, coming out on August 22nd. Kara, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thanks for having me. So can you tell us a little bit about yourself and the work you do in education?
1: Sure. Um, My name is Kara Fitzpatrick, and I am currently a story editor at Chalkbeat, which is a nonprofit news organization that focuses exclusively on education. Um, I've been an education journalist for almost 20 years, and before Chalkbeat, I worked in Florida um, at several newspapers also covering education.
0: Right. Thanks. So this is a book about privatization in education, especially vouchers and to a lesser extent charters. Can you first just explain what are vouchers and what are charters?
1: Sure. Um, School vouchers is a term that, that is used to describe when the government helps a family pay for private education by essentially giving them a check, not always directly to the family, but some allotted amount of money that will help them pay for private education or alternative education. Um, A charter school by law in every state where they exist is a public school, but they are sort of outside of the school district. They're publicly funded, but privately managed sometimes by nonprofits.
0: So you describe how conservatives pushing school choice are working to redefine the phrase public education. You quoted Doug Ducey, the governor of Arizona, as saying public education means educating the public. And then you had a quote from Ron DeSantis, the governor of Florida and a possible presidential hopeful who said, if the taxpayer is paying for education, it's public education. So can you tell us what this slip in the definition of public education means, how it's a change from how public education has historically been defined and why conservatives want it defined in this way?
1: So for more than a hundred years, our country has defined traditional public education as government funded, um, secular education, free to anyone, um, will accept all students, all comers. And what Republicans are trying to do is essentially to broaden that definition to include any kind of educational option that is paid for with some amount of um, government funding. So if you, for instance, attended a Catholic school and had a voucher that's still a Catholic school, they you know, are free from a lot of the requirements that public schools face, but the family is having their tuition paid for by the government. So what those Republican governors are saying is that that Catholic school is also public education. Um, you know, they, they would broaden that definition to also include maybe assisting a homeschooling family in paying for some materials with, again, paying for it with tax dollars and saying that that is also public education. So if you're a conservative, you might say that's broadening the definition of public education. If you're an advocate for traditional public education, as it's been known in this country for more than 100 years, um, you might say that's devaluing the notion of public education.
0: So what are they hoping to gain by changing this definition or how is there, how is this change in definition devaluing public schools?
1: Well, I think when you start calling everything public education, you know, that in itself is a bit of a slippery slope because public education has a lot of accountability attached to it. Public schools, you know, if you are interested in the curriculum that a public school is using, you should be able to find that information out. You should be able to vote in school board members or vote out school board members as some kind of accountability in your school district. You really don't have those same accountability measures for a homeschooling family or for a family whose children go to a Catholic school. Those are very different types of education. And so when you blend that definition to include everything, then, you know, it does sort of raise a lot of questions about, well, then how do we know if those students in some of those different options are being well served? Whereas however imperfect the accountability system is for public schools, in most states you can get a general idea of how students are doing.
0: So you talk about Milton Friedman, who was an extremely influential economist and wrote essays in the 50s and onward, theorizing and advocating for school privatization. He was really open about his goal to eliminate public schools completely in favor of private schools do you find that advocates of school choice now are open about that same goal? And do they even have that goal right now?
1: Um, I mean, Milton Friedman was very clear about, as you say, very clear about his beliefs. And, and he truly considered vouchers to be a better system. And he proposed that Uh, Really, before many people knew what it was or had much experience with it, he just believed that the market would do a better job than the government in providing a service, and he viewed education essentially as a service. Um, What's sort of interesting when you go back and look at, at Milton Friedman's very long advocacy for school vouchers is that he was always very honest and very clear about the fact that if you had school vouchers you would probably see more private school options and you would probably see fewer traditional public schools um i would say in the last maybe 30 years or so the um the more recent advocates for school choice have been i don't want to say less honest about it but um but they haven't said that their intention is to have fewer public schools. In fact, some of them have really made the case that it's to have more choice for families and that it is not in any way an attack on the public school system. So I do think there is a slight difference there between some of the more recent advocates and what um, Friedman had said for years and really was consistent until his, his death. I mean, he lived to be about 94. So he was very consistent for years and years. I do think in the last just couple years, there's been a bit of a shift where we've really seen a lot of very overt, very obvious attacks on public education from Republicans. And, you know, this is not something that every school choice advocate agrees with, but there have definitely been prominent choice advocates who have said pretty openly that they should use the culture wars, all of these different issues we're seeing you know, Republicans press in red states, um, they should use those to sort of rack up legislative wins for school choice policies. And some have been pretty open about that. And there's been a little pushback from others. So I wouldn't say everyone is in complete lockstep there, but definitely that that shift toward really attacking public schools um, has been a little more overt the last couple of years.
0: So when we think about information that advocates of public schools might like to have, You wrote about how vouchers originated in addition to Milton Friedman's ideas from Southern school systems seeking to create vouchers to offer white students an education at private schools in order to avoid attending racially integrated public schools after Brown versus Board was handed down. Yet vouchers did not displace public schools in the 50s and 60s. Are there any lessons from that historical moment that are relevant now for advocates of public schools who oppose vouchers? Well, I
1: think that period of time was incredibly interesting to me because, one, I just don't think it's as well known to some people um, when you talk about school vouchers that that there was this history in the 50s and into the 60s of segregationists using vouchers as a means of, of getting around um, integration. and they even they even, as they could kind of see Brown coming in the few years before, started started making efforts to essentially privatize the school system. And I think that period of time is really fascinating because it raises a lot of the same issues that you see for the the next several decades up until the present day, just questions of who's being served and why and what it does to community togetherness, to integration. We still have very segregated public schools. Um, And so all of those kind of the same questions that were happening in the 50s and 60s now are still sort of relevant today. And I think that's just kind of really fascinating. Um, I think one of the things that makes it hard to compare the current time period and the 50s and 60s and those programs in the South, is that the courts really saw what the segregationists were doing for what it was and very quickly were knocking down a lot of those programs. And so there wasn't, I think Virginia and Louisiana had the longest standing programs and the biggest ones, but it never really took off to be big enough or for long enough to kind of see fully what it might do to a public school system. Um, and also, you know, you did see a little bit of people taking vouchers to use them for different reasons that didn't have a whole lot to do actually with race. There were some families who just used them to pay for private school in other states. Um, But, but it's sort of, it's sort of hard to compare. But I do think that that history is really relevant to today, and would be of interest to people who are watching all of this school choice legislation. Across the country, and sort of wondering where it came from and what some of the major issues might be.
0: So, tell us a little bit more about the coalition that you describe in the book as the unholy alliance of voucher proponents.
1: Um, sure. This was something that I really was just really captured by. Um, it's a term that Polly Williams used, she was a Democratic state representative in Wisconsin. Um, and her district included Milwaukee, which is where she lived. Um, she was uh, this very influential legislature. legislator in, um, in Wisconsin. She was a Black woman, and she was very committed to helping Black people that she felt were being poorly served or underserved by institutions, including the Milwaukee School District. And she came up with all kinds of different... Different ways trying to sort of improve education for Black students in Milwaukee and trying to sort of push the school district to make some changes that she felt were necessary. She also was very opposed to integration policies, which I thought was um, especially interesting that she thought integration policies in Milwaukee schools really were putting the burden of integration on Black students in a way that she thought um, was unfair in certain respects and also sort of took the power out of black neighborhoods and um, potentially black institutions. Some of Milwaukee schools were quite segregated. Um, And so she sort of joined forces with uh, Governor Tommy Thompson in 1989 and 1990 to pass a small school voucher program in Milwaukee. And Tommy Thompson was a white Republican who had a pretty long political career in the state, somewhat similar to Polly Williams. Um, But they generally agreed on just about nothing. I mean, they really just didn't line up on very many issues at all, but they found this sort of common interest in vouchers. Polly Williams was very much coming at it from a perspective of trying to empower low income Black and maybe Latino students um, in Milwaukee. And Tommy Thompson was coming at it more from sort of a Milton Friedman perspective and, and also you know, um, Ronald Reagan had been president before this time period and had promoted vouchers and hadn't really gotten anywhere with it. And so I think Thompson had it in his mind as sort of a potential Republican education issue. And so the two of them got together to pass this legislation after sort of failing to pass other things, including a couple of voucher programs on their own. And so I thought it was really interesting to see that alliance And what she called the unholy alliance from just about the start, because she had her own reservations about partnering with a Republican governor.
0: So I was interested to read what you wrote about how creating school voucher programs entails all kinds of battles and opposition. In the book, you explained, and this is a quote, most proposals nationwide had failed. Legal battles were all but guaranteed even small programs once enacted faced shifting political winds and fierce opposition for years afterward. So why don't people like vouchers and why are we getting more of them now when they're so unpopular?
1: Well, it's interesting because, you know, they've become more popular over time because I think they've become more familiar. And there's sort of some interesting research also about polling that when parents are asked about the concept of a school voucher without using the word voucher, they generally are a little more in favor of it. Choice, school choice sounds uh, positive, And a lot of people like that concept. And I think over time it has become more familiar. So today there's still a lot of fierce opposition, but generally the public when they're polled are a little bit more... Um, they respond a little more favorably than they did um, in the 80s and 90s when when these issues were starting to come back again um it's sort of it's sort of interesting because there's there's fierce opposition just because it raises these questions about you know if you're going to fund something outside of the public school system who is it for how does it work is it pulling money away from, The traditional public schools. And then, kind of, how do you decide if it's working, right? If this is to empower um, disadvantaged students, then how do we decide it's working? How do we measure it? Because if you're sending a child to a private school, you know, the public is less entitled to that information typically. So there's always been these questions. I think what's interesting, you know, when you look at this over time is that lots of legislation has failed, lots of programs have failed. There's been Um, referendums that have failed, but just enough programs passed to kind of get a toehold.
0: So how do policymakers monitor if they're working? What kinds of outcomes, when outcomes are measured at all, are being reported? And what do we know about how these programs work for students in terms of academics?
1: It varies quite a bit. Um, Some states have a lot more accountability measures than others. Um, And some states also, some programs like Milwaukee's, they've added accountability um, regulations over time because there were concerns about, you know, private schools suddenly failing, um, questions about how the kids were really doing. And so there's been kind of an evolution where some programs actually have quite a bit of accountability. Um, but it varies, you know, it varies widely. Some states have the private schools who accept vouchers actually have the students participate in the same state tests as the public school students. And then that, that information is released publicly. So you can look at a school that's taking 90% of kids with vouchers and compare it to a public school, you know, maybe down the road in some places. In other places, maybe they have the kids take, you know, the students who are accepting vouchers. Take a norm reference test, but it's not the same test as the state test that the public school students take. And the, the results maybe are released to researchers studying the program, but not to the general public. So it varies quite a bit. What's sort of interesting right now is that a lot of states, you know, there's this movement to pass universal vouchers where anyone, regardless of income, is eligible. And this latest wave of legislation doesn't have as much accountability regulation attached to it. So it may in fact be hard to tell how students are doing. Um, You know, and and the, the research that has been done on some of the longer existing programs actually has not been that great in terms of test scores you know i think when vouchers first were sort of reintroduced in the 90s there was an assumption that students were just going to do better in private schools that private education was somehow better and as far as the research that's been done you know that hasn't really that hasn't really been the case the um the test score results in many cases are about the same as traditional public schools and in some cases they're actually a little worse particularly in math you know so i think that's one of the not the only measure, of course, of of school performance, but it's one of the main ones. And it really hasn't panned out the way some early advocates, I think, were hoping.
0: So I asked here about academic outcomes, but are there other side effects of vouchers and school privatization, maybe beyond students' test scores, that we should also look at as outcomes when we're considering whether we favor or oppose policies like these?
1: Yeah, I think some of the other things that people have, you know, that researchers have looked at or considered to be important are also sort of life outcomes. You know, if a student uses a voucher to go to a private school, are they more likely to graduate? Are they more likely to go to college? Um, You know, that's, that's a pretty important indicator that some people have looked at. And the research has been a little bit better there. There's been some research showing that students who use a voucher to go to a private school in certain programs, you can't generalize across all programs, but in certain programs, there's been some, some correlation there. Um, but, you know, you also have to have programs exist sort of long enough to be able to, to track a child's trajectory. So some of that is also a little bit old, um, you know, but, but I think there are efforts to look outside of just Test scores. But since it is one of the major metrics used to look at public education, I think that question is always there. You know, if we're going to pay for these policies as taxpayers, then, you know, are we getting something better or as good as the traditional public schools?
0: I imagine that it's challenging to publish a book about an ongoing issue in the news because the story continues to evolve as and even after the book goes to press. So I'm curious what you're watching now in relation to school privatization.
1: Oh, it has been
0: sort of wild to
1: watch, actually, because I took about five years of research and writing to complete the book. And then maybe now I'm in year six of sort of all the publishing aspects of it. You know, so there's a the the part of publishing a book takes quite a while, and at the same time, just the news has been so fast, and it felt like every few months there's another headline saying that this is now the biggest choice program, and then oh no, not that one. Now this is the biggest choice program, and I think I think we're up to now eight states with universal um, vouchers, where every student qualifies, and that is a really big change from from even just a year or two ago. I actually. I had to put my final edits on the book in in like mid-May, and I had to update the introduction with, with all of this legislation that's occurred, because I think when I had first written it, only Arizona had every student in the state eligible. And so that's just been a little nerve-wracking and, and sort of wild. But I also, I appreciate the book is coming at a time when it is so relevant, and so many people are looking at these different, choice policies that are passing and sort of asking like, well, where did this come from and how is it used and what does it mean? So I appreciate that. But yeah, the stress of sort of trying to figure out when you can actually say, okay, the introduction is done. And the what one of the people at the publishing house said to me was basically, you you can't ever, I mean, it's just, it's an ongoing issue. It's hugely relevant. I mean, right now, one of the things I'm really interested in and watching are some of these questions about charter schools, um, which we've talked about a little less, but charter schools right now, there's there's um, there are efforts being made to create religious charter schools. And there's just this open question as to whether or not that's constitutional. And Oklahoma just approved an application from a Catholic church to open the first, you know, overtly religious charter school in America. And, you know, that school hasn't opened yet and it's still very much up in the air and a lawsuit was just filed to stop it. But I imagine that for probably a few years, that question is still going to be percolating and may end up at the Supreme Court. And I didn't even get into the idea of religious charter schools in the book. Um, I got into some of the legal history that will be in play if that question reaches the Supreme Court But that's just a fascinating turn of events. And I think even a couple of years ago, people who wrote about that possibility were kind of shut down as like, oh, that's not, that's not going to happen. And now it's, it's very much a real issue.
0: What is going on in those eight states with universal vouchers? I did not know that that had come to pass. And maybe it's too soon to say if they're just implementing them this year or this past year. But how is it playing out? How is it affecting public schools? And how are the programs um, coming to life?
1: So it's still a little bit in the infancy um, in some of those places like Arizona and Florida, there have there's already been a longstanding history of school choice, not necessarily universal vouchers, but, you know, Florida's had 20 some years of school choice in various ways. And so in some places, I think the concept is not as new. People are a little more familiar with what a voucher is. Um, but one of the big kind of questions that I have, and I'm waiting to see is, you know, one, how many people really take up the state on this offer? You know, how many people, how many families really are interested in these options? Are they meaningful? Um, In some places, there are starting to be some sort of projections that these programs actually could be quite a bit larger than what the state or the lawmakers had sort of anticipated or said to the public. Arizona is one of those where there seems to be a much higher cost potentially for the universal program than was anticipated. Florida looks like that might also be the case. Um, and one thing I'm interested in too is that when you make every child in the state eligible, some of those children were already in private schools and their families were already paying for that education. So in some cases, what the state is doing is is essentially just subsidizing private school for families who could already afford it, or we're finding the means to afford it. Um, So I'm just kind of interested to see what the costs are, and how many people really take the state up on these offers. And then for the public schools, I think it's, it's got to be pretty harrowing, because these programs, some of them are funded differently. I think Iowa actually has a set aside sum as opposed to it just coming out of the the school system, if a student leaves. In other cases, it's definitely going to have an effect on the budgets for some of these school districts. And I think, you know, I've seen a few news articles in Florida about school districts trying to figure out their budget with kind of this looming question of, well, how many of our kids who are currently enrolled, how many of them are going to go maybe use a voucher? And then what does that mean for these set costs that you have when you have a school and you have buses and all these things that have to be paid for, even if like five kids leave, you know, it's a very delicate issue to try to figure out how that affects school budgets.
0: For sure. So your book title is The Death of Public School with a subtitle of How Conservatives Won the War Over Education in America. But most American students are still educated in public schools. And in some places, teachers and other advocates are slowing efforts at privatization. So is the war over? Have conservatives really won it? Is public school dead?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think the the title is definitely provocative. Um, I think there's a um, there's kind of this open question, right? I think You know, obviously public education, traditional public education in America is not dead. The book is not a eulogy, but it's it's a question right now, because if you're seeing this huge push to broaden school choice and have all these different options, including religious education, there there's an appeal to that for a lot of people. And so, you know, at the end of the day, you still have only so many children in school districts. And so I just, I think it's kind of, it's pointing towards something that is not the same as what traditional public education in America was up until about 1990, right? It's it's pointing toward a future that is very different from what we might've envisioned say when I was a child or when my parents were young. Um, and then, you know, I think the title may in fact upset everyone on both sides of that issue. You know, and I say both sides, but there's there's nuance within the school choice movement as well of people who don't necessarily agree with each other. But I suspect that, you know, conservatives will not really like the death of public school because that sounds like they're they're harming public schools. And and for some advocates, you know, they've really tried to not send that message. And then I think sort of progressive liberal readers you know, who value traditional public education or are fighting for it right now in some states will not appreciate the idea that conservatives have won anything because they feel like they're very much still fighting this battle. The reason I went that way with the subtitle is when you look at this, the history of it, you know, this history that I've charted since the 1950s, there's just this, it's slow, it was slow, but there's this very big change that has happened you know, Milwaukee was a very small program when it started in 1990. And from that, we have just seen this sort of explosion of choice. And there've been years where it's, there's been less and people have said, oh, I think this, you know, choice is dead. And then there've been periods of time like now where it's going sort of crazy. What I thought was more important even than the programs or the size of the programs or how many programs was the legal history. You know, this idea that the people who were advocating for school choice pushed these policies into the court system very much to get an answer on whether or not it was constitutional, especially when you're talking about religious education, because you have that church state question. And over 20 plus years, they've been quite successful in sort of pushing for more and more state aid to various forms of private education, particularly religious education. And now what we have is a very conservative majority on the US Supreme Court and the last few years we've seen a few more school choice cases where it's kind of opened that door a little bit more for more state aid to private education. So to me, you know, what I was kind of looking at was this legal history is there. You have 20 some years of of legal precedent to support this. Those are extremely huge wins because maybe a group of opponents in a state or a community push hard against a new proposal, a new school voucher program. But the legal side, it's it, it's one, you know, the, there's a right to do it. You're, you can't argue that it's unconstitutional under certain parameters. And so to me, I thought that really is a big sort of story that hasn't been told as much or is maybe less understood because church state law is kind of murky and confusing.
0: Sure. Yes. So before I ask our final question, is there anything else you want to say about this book or the topic of school privatization and the attack on public schooling? Um, you know, I think just
1: one of the things that I hope people take away from this or if they're interested in in reading it is that, you know, I'm a journalist, I'm an education journalist, I'm not an advocate. I think there have been quite a few books either advocating for or against um, school choice. And so what I really wanted to do was not necessarily to take a a position on school choice, good or bad, up, down, vote, but really sort of to untangle this, this longer history. And so if someone was looking around at all of this news and kind of going, well, where the heck did all of this come from? That the book at least would provide an answer. And then I think it's really up to communities and individuals to decide if that's something that they think is valuable or something that hurts, you know, um, something that they hold dear, which might be their public school.
0: So thank you for all of this. Would you um, wrap us up here by letting us know what you're working on now? Um, I'm still
1: sort of trying to survive the the book coming out and I'm looking forward to a book tour. Uh, But, you know, my day job is still as an education journalist and I am an editor at Chalkbeat. And so I'm, you know, every day editing education stories in um, communities around the country. Chalkbeat's, you know, has a national scope and and enjoying that. And I'm really interested in, in sort of the outcome of the pandemic and the you know, the academic recovery that we're seeing in some areas and and efforts to help students who may be struggling. So every day it's some kind of education
0: that I'm doing. Sounds great. Well, thank you so much for coming on the show today. I really appreciate it.
1: Thank you for having me.